G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardeet. Today is Tuesday, the 1st of August. The 1st of August? Where is this year gone? <laughs> and our topics this week are that Victoria is going to ban gas from new homes from 2024. For American listeners, that's not uh, gas that you put in your car. That is natural gas. Uh, and, of course, we also have Australia to manufacture and export missiles to the United States of America. Then, or in between, I should say, we always have our two-ticks town talk. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deep and finish off, as always, with a 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, we wanted to shout out some of the countries from around the world where our listeners are located. And this week, we wanted to say howdy. How you doing? To our listeners from the USA, to our Americans. USA, USA. <laughs> RD, how are you today? What's going on? <laughs> howdy, DK. Howdy to our US listeners. Uh, not a hell of a, a lot today. I've had one of those weeks where I feel like I've been running around like a blue ass fly and I can't tell you what I've really ticked off the ticked off the list but uh I did have, oh, have god when out uh I might have mentioned it before as a, a a mate of mine that we go out we catch up once a month and go out for a feed we we take turns in picking a restaurant we call it our gentleman's dinner there used to be used to be three of us but I might have mentioned the past um one of the guys we went out with, he he died uh, died last year. So it's just the the two of us. But we had got got on the uh, got on the train, and uh, people were there was sort of a lot of people waiting to go to the Collingwood Melbourne AFL game. And we was the guy sitting in the uh, the seats next to us. We heard him talking to his mates and saying something. Oh, and the trains are all backed up to such and such a, a, a station, and. When he got off, we said, "What's what's happening?" He said, "Oh, someone's someone's in the the city loop tunnel or on the bridge." We looked at Reddit; there seemed to be conflicting stories. But basically, we were then spending ten minutes at each uh, at each train stop, waiting before we we went on and trying to calculate. Well, do we get off before other people realise what's going on? And it's it was just interesting to see that as the train got slower, you saw more and more phones coming out. And people accessing the information. I thought it's an interesting experience. How I mean, people do bag out the mobile phones, and there's there's good cause to bag out the the mobiles, the devil's rectangle, as I sometimes call it, <laughs> uh, to to bag it out sometimes. But it was interesting to see that information flow coming into that uh that that train and people making their decisions i mean well we we ended up getting off getting off jumping on a tram and we got into um we're 45 50 minutes late for our dinner thing but we'd, we'd spoken to them on the phone but i did appreciate and this is a this is a customer service uh shout out in fact the restaurant we went to was um botswana butchery so i'll give them i'll give them a, a bit of a a, a shout out what I really loved was I'd spoken to a, a young woman there and said, look, this is the story with the trains, blah, blah, blah. Then when we got in, 
she was generally interested. She said, oh, look, how did it go with the trains? And I said, look, that's great. I said, look, can you just tell me where your bathroom is? And it clicked with her because we'd been, like i got to say, for 15 minutes, so I've been thinking, oh, my God, I'm just so busting. Because we'd had a couple of beers at his place before he got on the train, expecting it wasn't going to be that long a train trip, but suddenly you throw, you know, bloody yep. 45 minutes onto it. And she said, the bathroom's around there. I'll wait for you until you're ready. Come back to me. And I thought, oh, thank you, thank you very, oh, very good. much. So I, it, was a, it was interesting to see the information flow to the mobiles, and it was really good to get that level of um, aware service. So, yeah, that's yeah. no, that's good. That's really good when you have someone that just kind of you know is a bit in tune and you're not not a big inconvenience and everything like that. So yeah. no, that's really good. Yeah, exactly. And it was a good feed. So yeah, that, that was sort of, even better. Yeah, bloody oath, bloody oath. Had a uh, beautiful uh, pork chop there. They sort of do a whole lot of char grilled um, type of like that's that's their. Uh, their focus, even the even the uh, what do I have? Mushroom tart for the the entree. Ooh. It's still yeah, yeah it was like good. slightly char grilled mushrooms. I thought, mm delicious. Yeah, that you make yeah. me hungry. <laughs> I know. I just I was just thinking that as well. It was, a, it was a generous. It was a generous serve. That was my week. What about you? What have you been up to? Oh, I feel a bit the same. I feel like a bit of a headless chicken. I think I'm, I'm yeah. looking back on the week now and I'm like, what What actually happened? Uh, I've just been so busy this last week with, with a number of different things. Um, though probably the, the, the thing that made me the most, when I look back in the last seven days, what was the thing that I was most excited about and the thing that sort of brings a smile to my face? And you know, there are times in your life as you, you know, sort of grow older uh, and I feel like it's quite common to reflect, especially when you're a young adult, you know, in your late 20s, uh, even say your early 20s, and you sort of get, uh, quote unquote, excited about adult things. And I definitely had one of those this week. Um, on Friday, I got some new tires on my four wheel drive and uh, they weren't cheap mind you, uh, and a, a <laughs> couple of grand, yeah, a couple of grand's worth of rubber, uh, but, uh, they definitely make my ute look absolutely fantastic. I cannot wait to get off road. Maybe, uh, this, this Friday afternoon, I'll get a chance to, to go and hit some local trails. Uh, but it's also one of those real, uh, as, as my wife likes to call them, uh, sort of like dad moments where you're all excited <laughs> about something that most people won't really care, you know? Um, uh, I wasn't excited about paying the bill uh, because anyone that's got a four drive or four hour American listeners, a big, big truck, uh, <laughs> they'll know the, the larger the tire, the more expensive the tire. Uh, and it definitely stings, you know, when you're paying sort of over 400 400 $500 a tire, it, it definitely hurts when you're buying a whole set of five. So, um, but I'm still excited about it. I walked out before and uh, looked at the 4B and I was like, yeah, can't wait to can't wait to this weekend. So next weekend, I'll have some some new photos for uh, post your environment Monday and probably still a nice big grin on my face and a very dirty four-wheel drive. So, um, so they're all-terrains or they're actually like mudders? Uh, they're they're a very aggressive all terrain. They're technically all terrains, okay. yep. uh, but they're they're very aggressive and 
you know, there's there's definitely an overlap between the all terrains, the aggressive all terrains, and sort of like the less aggressive mud tires. Mm. Um, by traditional standards, I think you know, twenty years ago, these would probably be called mud tires. But today, uh, you know, we sort of the distinctions, the lines there are a bit more blurry. Um, okay. But yeah, it looks good, and more importantly, she's probably about two, two and a half centimeters taller, uh, which wow. unexpectedly has made. Uh, I'm six one, so I'm pretty tall, uh, right. and I think you just kind of get a muscle memory as you get in and out of your car, and like you know, access the rear and things like that. And I've noticed uh, immediately how much of a difference that small. Uh, increase in size has made uh, even getting up. I think the first time I went to climb into it, I don't know. I my my foot hit the the sill, and I was sort of like, "Oh wow, okay, we need to go up a bit oh. more," sort of thing. So, um, it's a bit a bit like if you ever walk down a stair that's not quite normal size. You know, it's a little bit higher or a little bit too low, and you sort of yep. fumble a bit. It was a bit like that. And I was sort of like, oh, hang on. Uh, I need to pay a, bit more, a little bit more attention, I think, over the next couple of weeks uh, while I st- uh, my muscle memory relearns the new height. But mm. all in all, I'm very excited uh, and I'm ready to get the 4B all muddy. Though I'm not, I'm not excited about cleaning it. Ha! Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife insists that the car is clean. Oh, fair, look, fair enough. Look, it, it, does, it does look good having the, a clean car and it feel good i think yeah oh definitely definitely speaking of things that uh might not make you feel good depending on where you stand on this uh victoria the australian state of victoria is set to ban gas connections to new homes from 2024 uh they're gonna ban natural gas connections to new homes from the beginning of next year as part of the plan to cut emissions and lower energy bills, the state climate action minister said last Friday. The government said from the 1st of January 2024, planning permits for new homes and residential subdivisions, including public and social housing, will only connect to all electric networks. All public buildings, such as schools, hospitals, police stations, and government-owned buildings that are yet to reach design stage must also be all electric, effective immediately. Energy and Resource Minister Lily D'Ambrosio said building an all-electric home would cost less than having a gas connection. She said that using electricity would also make heating a home and cooking more affordable for Victorians. She goes on to say, those gas bills are absolutely eye-watering. Going all electric will save a new homeowner roughly $1,000 off their energy bill each year and every year. And if they've got solar panels, it'll save them save them 220000 Sorry, not 220000 oh, yeah, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 2200 yeah. I should have said. <laughs> uh, sorry for the misquote there. Uh, the government said Victoria had the highest use of residential gas in Australia at about 80% of homes with a gas connection. We'll put a pin in that because I'm going to come back with a little bit of states and figures, stats and figures for you a little bit later on just to make things really boring. Uh, But it does help put things into perspective about why Victoria is doing this. 
So it said that the gas sector contributed 17% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions, and the move to electricity was a key element of meeting Victoria's emission reductions target of 75 to 80% by 2035 and net zero by 2045. Ms. D'Ambrosio said the government would offer a million-dollar transition package to the construction industry. She said the training program would be co-designed with industry and the relevant unions to ensure it's the best fit for them. The design of that training will also take into account the new seven-star rating for homes. She said, though, it doesn't (laughs) apply to commercial developments. So industry and commercial is still fair game. Planning Minister Sonia Kilkenny said there would be a transition period for homes that were already going through the approval and permit process. She goes on to say there will be changes to the Victorian planning provisions and the planning schemes. There will be a consultation, obviously, that takes place to support all of those in the industry, local government, with these new changes. In 2021, Infrastructure Victoria released a report recommending the state government reduce gas usage, remove the barriers to all electric developments, and review all natural gas use in government operations. The Climate Council said that the announcement was, and I quote, game-changing. Gas is an invisible harm in our homes, schools, and workplace, Climate Councillor Kate Charlesworth said. She says... The danger it poses, especially to our children, vulnerable households cannot be completely eliminated even with better ventilation. We have a responsibility to sound the alarm on gas just as we did with asbestos and tobacco. Maybe a little bit of alarmist there, but... Oh, do you do- think so? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Je- Jennings said that a child living in a house with a gas stove is more likely to develop asthma which is similar to a child living in a house with cigarette smoke, he said. Gas appliances can even cause death through carbon monoxide poisoning, though that is exceptionally rare. The Royal Australian College... off the wall and walk into your bedroom and strangle you at night. (laughs) The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine has welcomed the government's announcement. Of course they would. They're not going to... Yeah. They're not going to poo-poo it. Uh, so the real question is, how likely is it that other states and territories will actually follow suit? The transition away from gas is actually already happening, and experts have said that it's inevitable. The ACT is already doing it. From the 1st of January this year, all new builds in the Australian capital were without gas connections. The Waverley Council in Sydney's east has also banned gas heating and cooking appliances in new developments. And banning gas is a conversation all Australian governments, state governments, are having. Um, And Victoria is just the first to launch, but in the meantime, there's activity at more local scales. Victorian ban is reflective of the fact that the public opinion, emission strategies and net zero strategies all require us to eliminate gas eventually, though some states may offer incentives to not install gas appliance rather than impose bans, but ultimately the goals are the same. Interestingly, the data released from the Gatton Institute shows residential gas usage is higher in Victoria than any other jurisdiction. The report published last month called on each state and territory government to set a date for the end of gas. About 5 million 
Australian households in total are on gas, according to Gatton. The Victoria would have to take, this is pretty incredible. Victoria would have to take 200 homes a day off gas every single day until 2045 to reach net zero, which is their target. 2045. Sorry, achieve net zero. Say, that, say those figures again. The state of Victoria would have to take 200 homes a day off okay, gas. Hang on, let, let, I'm, I've just got out the, the ca- calculator. So 200 homes a day. So Every times day. 365 equals, that's 73,000 homes a year. Until until when did you say? Twenty twenty forty five. Twenty forty five. So that's twenty uh, two years away. So times twenty two. That's one point six million homes. And what did you? Say? How many homes did you say? That was five, there's five million homes. Five million homes. In Australia, yeah, okay. with gas connections. Oh, oh, so, oh, sorry, God, it just sounded like one of those, one of those, um, one of those Al Gore climate change figures. But I stand corrected; it does add up. It, you're exactly right, and I think this is probably why the Grattan Institute used this because it really shows you the scale of what. You know what they're talking about here: two hundred homes per day. That that. 200 is a number we can get our hand around. 5 million homes, I have no concept of of that, right? That's just, it's just a statistic. But 200 homes a day, I can understand that. You know, that that's sort of my neighbourhood, right? Um, I think everyone in Australia can understand 200 homes. There's a couple of streets sort of thing. Uh, you have to remove a gas connection and, and you know, re... Because uh, most gas connections in Australia are for... Heating the house, cooking, and hot water, uh, and we're talking about a huge infrastructure change. For can you imagine replacing your hot water system, your mm, cooktop, your yep. cooktop, and installing some form of alternative heating uh, in your home? Do you know how much that would cost an individual homeowner? That's a not, that is not an insignificant amount of money, especially in this economy yep, of all time. Um, 63% of Victorians' gas use, of Victoria's gas use, is in residential homes, while New South Wales was the next at 60%. Interestingly, Queensland was actually the lowest, where only 4% of total gas is used in houses. Almost all of the rest was used for power generation and in industry, which this sort of, if we rewind the clock to what we were talking about last week, about the the green hydrogen, a lot of those industries are now looking at the potential of hydrogen to replace natural gas. So Mm. I think we're going to see this story pop back up again as a transition in that direction for a lot of the industrial uses and power generation uses of natural gas. But I think it's quite interesting that there is so much gas use in Victoria 
compared to and and New South Wales compared to other states. Now I do understand in Queensland uh, electricity is more favourable because we have uh, we do have a state owned electricity provider called Ergon, uh, which does keep electricity generally more affordable than some of the more some of the southern states. Oh, uh, okay, and and to go hand in hand with that. As a result, rooftop solar is exceptionally popular here. Um, you know, if you drive down dead, almost any street in Queensland, I would say it's probably 50-50 if the house has got rooftop solar or not. Yeah, good climate, so it climate, is Exactly. So it's the perfect climate for it. You're almost silly not to have it here, sort of thing like that. So in my house, the only thing that runs on gas is the barbecue. Um, and of course, that's just in an LPG bottle. That's not what we're talking about in these statistics. Uh, bottled gas like that is a separate thing that they weren't including at all. This is permanent gas connections. So I only have one friend that lives around here that actually has a gas connection to their house and it, it is actually run off lpg bottles outside of their house that they they refill it's not a permanent connection so um it's not it's, that it's, it, one, it, it's one where the truck rocks up and fills it up no actually they're the small nine kilo bottles they just go to the the servo or bunnings or there's a number of places you can buy them um they're swap and go bottles just like you use it for their house yeah it's only for their stove it's only for their cooktop Nothing else. Nothing well, else runs all, off that. Uh, that's interesting because I've got I where I, I am uh, lo located. We don't actually have mains gas, so we're on on bottles and the. I, I do, so, uh, the, so you, the, you have uh, those really big bottles, I imagine. Yeah. Well. Uh, well. I, for us in our house, no, we've just got the forty-five kilo ones, which are probably about. Uh, let's see. Let's say a, a meter and a half high and a diameter of approximately thirty centimeters. So yep. that's sort of rough size. The neighbors either side have got the you know the the, the big ones, whatever. You know, it's, it's about two two meters and a you know a, a sixty centimeter diameter. Um, yep. Which they tend to get. They tend to get filled up each um, each month. And look, oh he, wow. He, yeah, wow. yeah, look, it's 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 up because I often I often see. Well, hang on, let me let me rephrase it. They get topped up each month, so it's going to depend oh, okay. on how much they they go through. Sorry, I, I, that's that's a an important distinction. I, I think it's topped up, but yeah, they had they had said to us, yeah, we've got this deal. If we get some people in, we can possibly get it down cheaper. And I said, look, we've. We've been here. Yeah, we've we've gone through one of these forty-five our forty-five kilo ones in. Oh, I think it take it took us about four or five years, four years, something like four years to go through. Because all we do is do the um the uh, hot plates with the with the gas. Oh, okay. So, so you don't heat your house with gas. No. Yeah. Look, our our heaters, our heaters, or everything else is everything else is electric. In fact. The only reason we didn't go, well, not the only reason. There were two reasons we didn't go for um, induction. Our eventual plan is to get more and more independence from the the grid, um, and the induction stove tops at the time that we were looking to put them in their startup 
draw on the power was 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 too high. So that was a that was a problem. Uh, and the other thing that was a positive for the gas, aside from the fact that I love cooking with actual gas, um, is that it was an it was a sort of alternative independent energy source for us. So yeah, the the idea of having everything uh, at the mercy of the electrical coming in until we can work out how to get more and more independent didn't really appeal to me. So, but the main the main thing was the induction was just too much of a draw on our expectation of batteries. Yeah. Which I think, I think today it's a little bit different. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. We we just have a ceramic, uh, you know, traditional stovetop, electric stovetop, um, and yep. I hate it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, yeah. They're just, they're just a bit crap, you know. Um, so we've been sort of discussing about changing to a, a an induction cooktop. Um, originally, my my wife was. She really wanted a gas hookup, uh, but it, but it was one of those situations where for us it just didn't really make sense considering we've got the solar and everything like that, um, and also it would be it would it wouldn't be that much of a hassle in that we could drill you know sort of a hole through the exterior brickwork and everything like that. But it it is a significant you know significantly bigger cost than just hooking up a uh, an induction cooktop so for us it didn't really make much sense also because there is no permanent gas connection around here so it would also yeah, well, be bottles and, and all that kind of stuff so um the induction is it, it, yeah my opinion pass it on to your wife what it's, it's worth is the induction cooktops my original experience with them was pretty poor my experience with recent ones is it's really not that far off gas you know, so I, I love I love gas. I'm I'm very I'm very biased towards it, but I had the opportunity to loot, to use induction uh, cooktops a couple of times over the last couple of years, the newer ones, and they're, they're impressive. They're they're comparable. Yeah, and I think that's part of the issue. We've seen a disturbing trend uh, of the increase in connections with um uh sorry just using this grattan institute um paper uh research paper they had it had um demonstrated that there is an uptick in all states and territories for gas connections and i think it's sort of exactly what we were just saying about it's the cooking factor. I think there's sort of this prestige with cooking with gas compared to electricity. Um, it's, you know, it's what professional chefs use. It's what high-end homes traditionally have had over electric and thing. I think there's a bit of a, a bit of a prestige with gas compared to with electric. I do hope, and for listeners that are listening, um, induction is exceptionally good. Um, whilst I don't have one right now, my parents have had uh, one in their previous house and in their new oh, house. Okay. Okay. And I have cooked with an older induction cooktop uh, from from probably five or six years ago and also a brand new one. Uh, and I can tell you they're 
absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually think I would prefer it over gas um, mm. just because it's sort of that instantaneous heat. It's very flexible with what you can use and things like that. So I don't think you're as limited anymore as it used to kind of be. No, no it's a different, different world with induction. Yeah, and also my big thing was always that I like cooking sometimes with a wok, which is obviously gas. But I have found, and just the other day, uh, again, getting all excited about appliances, very much a dad thing, uh, <laughs> is, is an induction wok. So it's kind Ooh. of a, you put your wok in there. It's an induction thing. And I've actually been told by a couple of chefs that they are better than the commer the the sort of gas hookup you can have in your house is nowhere near as hot as like a commercial uh, Asian kitchen wok no. gas burner, right? No. Those things are on a different level. But the induction can get very close to that sort of uh, power output. Oh, yeah. Because it's an induction and the way it works and the technology, they're not cheap, mind you, uh, but if you're looking for that, the induction is a far superior way to go than a gas hookup. And I think as these things kind of develop over time and now with the government putting some restrictions into place, this is, this is one of those very rare times when I think the government intervention is actually a good thing because- People are going to go look for alternatives and they'll actually discover that some of these things are actually better, I think. The same is reverse cycle air conditioners, which is what the Grattan Institute was proposing people use instead of gas connections to heat their homes. Reverse cycle air conditioners can heat, they can cool. Uh, in America, for our American listeners, I think they call them heat pumps. Is um, It... Literally just works in reverse. Ooh. No, they're uh, different. They're, I'm, I'm pretty confident they're different things. Heat, is a heat, heat pump heat, a different heat, thing? Okay. Yeah, heat, a heat pump is a different thing to a reverse cycle air conditioner. Air conditioner? Yeah. yeah I'm, uh, I'm quite confident about that. Okay. Uh, a, a reverse cycle air conditioner is literally, as it explains, it, it instead of cooling, it can heat. It it literally changes the direction of the way that the gas cycles. Um, they're very, very efficient. They work really, really well. I actually have a um, our dryer is basically a reverse cycle air conditioner, um, and it's absolutely fantastic. Very, very energy efficient. Instead of a traditional uh, a dryer with a heating element and everything like that, which can be very energy intensive. Uh, we bought a new dryer last year and essentially it's a reverse cycle air conditioner. Or I shouldn't say reverse cycle air conditioner. It's a it's a it's an air conditioner that's a heating only. Um, huh. and it's incredibly, incredibly efficient in power. It's actually incredible. Uh, and very, very cool dryer and again this is the sort of thing we can do with electricity compared to is, gas is this so. the same form factor as a um yeah it just looks like dry? a regular dryer yeah oh, huh. yeah it just looks like a regular dryer um it, it does output a lot more water uh, which is why it is more efficient at drying clothes um but yeah otherwise it looks exactly like you you oh, honestly if you came to my house you wouldn't know anything different you'd walk straight past it and it wasn't that expensive either. Huh. Um, well, I would go. say it's about the same price as a regular um, a regular dryer. So we actually use that a lot now because um, 
I'm really lazy <laughs> and I don't want to put things on the line. So, but I've got solar, so I'm not destroying the planet. You know, it's all good. Oh, very, uh, very interesting. Look, we built our house. Uh, God, what was that? Something like eight years ago. Uh, the you know with all these star ratings and everything and that was yep. part of the reason I scoffed at that. How, how many how many star ratings did you say the current one was in Victoria? Was it seven they, or eight they, or something? They're pushing it to seven stars. Yeah. Seven, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when we're trying to get it, I think I think ours came in at, at, at uh, six or just shy of six, which was over the requirements. But we had uh, our two reverse cycle air conditioners. We put them in because the, uh, you know, the the architect was speaking to doing his the, the powers and the sums said, and that was you know, eight years ago. He said it's comparable with with gas, and it's you know just as it's just as efficient as that. So you may as well you know kill two birds with one stone, get the heating and the air conditioning. Now, in, yeah, with time going on, that's that's been that's been a very good decision. But uh, there was some. Uh, there's a technical term for describing the way that the air conditioners are, uh, operate, and I can't remember the electrical component. If I think of it, I'll tell you. But what it meant was it fundamentally changed how the air conditioners worked because it allowed them to essentially, yeah. Uh, I'll use an Americanism now, just to to, to, uh, to you know, stop on a dime and reverse or reverse on a dime and change their their function. In in oh god, it's going to be bugging me. Oh god, god, god. <laughs> yeah, god. Anyway, whatever it is, it was a, this bit of electronic, and it completely changed air conditions and suddenly made them a lot more a lot more efficient. So yeah, we went we went for for that, and it's interesting how that's has paid out. I'm not surprised to learn from you that you've got something in the dryer that uh, works that way. I also think as well, uh, there's gas to me seems like um, a very sort of like an antiquated technology. Like it, it, it's something I think we could all think up and we can all kind of understand, you know, gas burns, flame hot, you know, it all makes sense, right? Um, whereas a lot of these, uh, a lot of these electronic um, sort of advancements and how they work is a lot more complicated, and things are a bit slower, and the, the wheel is turning. But the end result is that we're using the energy in a much more efficient way. Um, so even if you are in Victoria and you you know you don't have solar or you don't really you know the access to solar isn't going to be as good and blah 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 um i think there's still a value in these because each household individually is going to be using less energy um and as a result you know that's better for the planet it's better for the environment it's, it's better for your wallet most importantly um and all of those sorts of things so I think ultimately this is pretty positive. I do think it's kind of a bit full on that it's within what uh, it's the first of August and they're doing this the first of January next year. So there are people that I'm sure in Victoria that have purchased blocks of land and are waiting for planning permission and those sorts of things that are probably now um, 
a little bit freaked out by how suddenly these these things have changed and some of those people may have to change their plans as a result and all of those sorts of things but at the end of the day i don't necessarily think that's too many people and i don't think i think it's worth the the speed of the change is worth the inconvenience to the handful of people that it's going to cause I can mm. say that because I'm not one of those people that's going to be inconvenienced by this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, look, I, I can see the reasoning and if, underscored if, if future electrification on renewables works, then okay. But, you know, we've seen, we've seen it had a couple of things around the, the world, you know, Germany and California, that's, it's sort of failing as a model. Might be different here in Australia. And, Look, for me, given my um, predisposition towards being highly sceptical of government and not trusting how they respond to lobby groups and the Victorian government in particular, I don't trust them with uh, them having that lever of you know, just that nice single lever to con- control to control things. So... Yeah, we could maybe a couple of things there we can get into uh, another another time, but I do uh, agree with you on the actual um, the, the the reasoning behind it, and I can I can see why they would be moving that way, but I also tend to agree with you that it seems to be a little bit abrupt at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just feels I don't know, it feels like it kind of came out of nowhere, but yeah. maybe it's been in the maybe it's been in the works for a long time. We don't know. Uh speaking of things we don't know, what um where are we going this week for our two ticks town talk? I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Well, uh two weeks ago I did the ghost town of Yandamindra in Western Australia. Uh but Let's move about 1,200k northeast to a town that was deliberately constructed in 1976 to move people away from something that nature made hundreds of millions of years ago. Uh, look, given 1976 as such, it's a very short interest, short history, but it's interesting to see how such a purposeful town developed. Now, I'm talking about the town of Yalara in the Northern Territory, about 300k southwest of Alice Springs. Now, I'm guessing from that you're going to you're going to uh, guess which particular standout monolith it's near. I'm I when okay. So when you first said that, yep. I was thinking, is there a volcano I don't know about or something <laughs> like that? We got to get the people out of here. Yeah. Um, but there is no active volcanoes in Australia. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, there's ancient volcanoes, but that is obviously isn't isn't an issue. Uh, I'm trying to think of what could be out there that we need to move people away from. Uh, I don't know. What are we? Yeah, well, well nothing yeah. jumps out at me. Lake Eyre? Okay. No, that that's South Australia. So, well, it's it is no Northern Territory. Yeah, no, sorry, Lake Eyre is in is in South Australia. Oh, right, right, right. So, um, yeah, it'll, you'll think, oh, of course, in a moment. Uh, it's near uh, Uluru, or yeah, previously known as Ayers Rock, and also yep. near. Uh, uh, Katajurta, 
previously known as the Olgas. Now, the town I'm talking about is the town of Ilara in the, the Northern Territory. Uh, let's get the Ilara is a town in the southern region of the Northern Territory. It lies in an unincorporated enclave within the McDonnell region. Um, it's got a population, as of 2016, population of 1,099, and it's 18Ks away from Uluru and well, 45Ks away from Kata, uh, Kata Juta. I believe that's correct, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. And it's in the federal electorate of Lingiari. And look, the reason why uh, I made the comment about the moving away was in the 1970s, by the early 1970s, there was a whole lot of unstructured, unmonitored tourism, motels and everything near the base of, of Uluru. The federal government determined that it was basically causing a problem, having detrimental effects on the environment, and there's a recommendation to the Senate to get rid of all the developments near the base of the rock and chuck it all into a resort to support tourism in the Uluru Katajuda National Park. Um, Commonwealth government agreed in 1973 to put all the accommodation facilities to the new site outside the park. And in 10th of August 1976, which really is not that long ago, I suppose it's a little bit of time ago, but in terms of new towns developing, the government governor general proclaimed the new town of Yulara. So then the Northern Territory got their, granted their self-government in 78 and started developing on the, the town. Uh, it was one of their, their priorities. Understandably, it's a large tourist, well, <laughs> it's a large tourist attraction physically and economically. <laughs> yeah, so, physically, it's very big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very yeah. famously, it's very large. <laughs> 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 exactly. Uh, so between 78 and 81, they put in the, the basic infrastructure, you know, roads and, and water supply, etc. cetera. Um, and they set up, a, you know, set up development companies. Uh, where there, was, there was information on there about, you know, that went from this development country to, to company to that development company. But in the end... Uh, it was seen that they had all these old motels that were relocated and it's basically consolidated into uh, just one large uh, Airs Rock resort within the town of oh, Ilara. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And look, the, the National Museum of Australia describes the area this way. The village has a supermarket, restaurant and cafes, all reliant on regular food delivered by food deliveries by truck and aeroplane across the arid plains of red sand and spin effects that extend beyond the village the local yakanjara pintanjara naganjara people knowing as anangu um, hunt animals and gather bush fruits and vegetables pastoralists raise beef cattle on vast stations so that's that's how the national museum of australia describes it and from my experience going up there that's not a bad description i was surprised because we got i got uh, uh got married in uh 1990 
and we went. That was one of the places we went for our our honeymoon. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. It was it it, it was very. I until I looked up Yulara, I didn't realize that it was such a young town. Because I mean, that's only what do I say? 70, 76. Yeah, twenty six years old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that wasn't that wasn't that long at all before we got up up there. Um, so it was. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable. Description, uh, yeah. I mean, look, Uluru at that point you could climb it, um, which we which we did. Uh, we, we yeah, we're not sort of the fastest climbers. We had had this. Um, I can't remember. I might have possibly told you this before, but we as we we're climbing up, there were a few German backpackers behind us, and they were yeah yeah much much younger and powering up this thing, and they eventually overtook us on the. The way he got up to the top, and they were first to sign the um, sign the book. But yeah, we were in there behind them. Say, so, yeah, well, I tore out the page, screwed it up, and put us first. <laughs> I was, no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it was a real off. They off they went. Uh, so yeah, it was. We stayed at we stayed at the resort that was was there. Um, they had it was it was interesting even at the time they had the resort because uh, it was our honeymoon we'd we'd sort of splurged on a few nights in I think they called it the called it sales as part of the I think they still call it the Airs Rock Resort um, which was sort of you know a, 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 sort of the upmarket part of it but then there was uh, yeah a general area and there's also campsites as well oh, so yep, it's yep, it's really of- well really well set up. Because a lot of people do uh, tour around Australia in their in their forbies and with their caravans and things like that. Yep. So you would need to make you know designated camping areas for for people. Though I mean, you could just camp on the side of the highway. I guess there's plenty of space. But um, no, I think it's cool that no, I, I, suppose, I, never, I suppose I did, you could. But yeah. I didn't realize. Now that you've said this, it completely makes sense because there is a national park. Uh, and and now that I look on Google Maps, Ulara is literally just outside the national parks. So it's sort of yes, um, you know, not not directly on the border, but very very much you know the, the closest practical point that you, you can get to it, um, which I think is nice. It's sort of the government's recognised and and sort of you know given everyone their space and everything like that because it is a very sacred place to the local communities and things yes. like that. And it it's a very cool and unique. You know, sort of, sort of space, very Australian, obviously. Um, so it, I think it, it is. It is, it is yeah. sort of, you know, good of the government to have done that. Yeah, look, I can, I can, I can understand that. You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of nuances and everything, but yeah, I, I tend to, I tend to agree with that. Uh, certainly, in, in keeping with what uh, people around the the area uh, wanted. Uh, look, un- unsurprisingly, the resort is really the the, the main economic um, powerhouse for the town, and it's also the being also being the jumping off point for the area's main attractions of, of Uluru and, and Katajuta. Um, so, it's not surprising that they have uh, really there's. That's that's the main one. They have a, a couple of uh, educational centres set up there. They've got the Nyanga Jajara College. Uh, that's a, a Nangu College, um, Anangu 
college in central um, Australia around there. They they do secondary education. Um, what's it got? All all of our students are Anangu and almost all speak Pindanjara as their first language. And we're the only secondary education provider in the Northern Territory south of Alice Springs. And then oh, there's wow. all, yeah, yeah. Then there's also a uh, Indigenous Training Academy, um, <laughs> imaginatively called the National Indigenous Training Academy, <laughs> <laughs> and that supplies people to the resort. But it also, uh, when I was looking into it, because there's a, a mob from Melbourne who. Uh, works on some of the certification for the, the the National Indigenous Training Academy up there. And a number of the people who go through there do end up at the at the resort. But uh and I they didn't have the percentages in what I was looking at, but there's also a number of them just go back to uh different areas around the Northern Territory with the skill sets that they've got and uh use them locally. Which I thought, oh that was it. That's an interesting an interesting expansion of this uh, deliberately created town that it's actually reaching out and having a bit of an impact on other areas, you know, well well beyond Yalara and within the Northern Territory itself. So, yeah, so that's yeah. Look, a, a bit of a, a bit of a snapshot of a town created very de- deliberately, um, yeah, bureaucratically, you could argue. But it seems to be it seems to be working, and it's a destination that uh, you just can't keep people away from. Understandably, it's bloody impressive, Uluru. Uh, so you may as well put in infrastructure there and and service people in the most beneficial way possible for the Northern Territory. Yeah, absolutely. It's somewhere I've never been, but I've always wanted to go. Um, and maybe maybe I'll plan a trip out there. This is mm. this is another. I, I don't know that I drive. It's a very long way from where I am. Um, yeah. It's it would be, uh, you know, like a multiple day journey for me t- to sort of get there. Um, but uh, Google Maps is telling me it's over forty hour drive. So. Uh, probably. Prob- <laughs> <laughs> Probably won't drive, but I think there is an airport out there uh, oh, that you yes, can fly to. There so. that was it. There's definitely an airport. In fact, uh, it has an airport servicing uh, servicing uh, flights between a number of major cities, and it's faster to get from Sydney to Yulara, for example, than it is to drive down from Alice Springs. So, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So instead of flying to Alice Springs and driving down, you may yep. as well. Yep. Yeah, you may as well just fly straight into Yulara. So maybe it's definitely on the bucket list, but maybe I need to make that more of a reality now that I know where I need to go. Yep, yep, exactly. So there you are, Yulara in the Northern Territory is our Tutix Town Talk for this week. Ah, oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. I don't have a really good segue into this next segment, so let's just get <laughs> straight into it. Uh, 
Australia is set to begin manufacturing its own missiles within the next two years under another ambitious plan uh, that's going to allow the country to supply guided weapons to the United States and possibly export them to other nations. The push to accelerate the creation of a local missile industry in cooperation with the US will be one of the centerpiece announcements at the Australian-United States Ministerial Consultations this was actually last Saturday. The joint missile manufacturing effort is being driven by the war in Ukraine, which has highlighted a troubling lack of ammunition stocks in Western nations, including the US. Defense Minister Richard Miles. Miles? I'm not sure. I think it's Miles. I, I, I thought it was Miles. Miles. All right, we'll go with that. Defence Minister Richard Miles. You'd think I'd know how to pronounce the Defence Minister's name, but I've only ever read it. I've never said it. So, uh, Defence Minister Richard Miles said last Friday after meeting with the US Defence Secretary, Secretary Lloyd Austin in Brisbane, it is really important for the industrial base of both our countries. It is hugely significant in terms of developing Australia's defence industry. It will be very important in ensuring Australia has the necessary war stocks in the future. Miles said that the announcement would signify bringing forward the planned opening of a local missile factory, which has been expected to take several years to get off the ground. As well as creating local jobs, a domestic missile manufacturing industry will make Australia less reliant on imports and provide a trusted additional source of munitions for the US. U.S. defense contracting giants Lockheed Martin and Raytheon have been selected by the government as preferred partners for its guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, which was identified as a priority by the current defense strategic review. The U.S. and Australia will also announce plans to upgrade their air bases in the Northern Territory. Maybe that was my uh, segue right there. Uh, oh, damn, yes. <laughs> I've, I've missed it. I've missed the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> So the US and Australia will also announce plans, or sorry, has announced plans to upgrade air bases in the Northern Territory so that they can be used for training exercises by both Australian and American troops. The Shriga and Curtin air bases located in Queensland and Western Australia, respectively, are regarded as bare bases, meaning they have very limited infrastructure and are run by small caretaker staff. I don't... I feel like if you ask them if they're caretaker, take caretaker staff, I think they'll be a little <laughs> bit offended. But realistically, compared to other bases around the world, they are pretty bare bones. Uh, in the sign of growing backlash to the submarine plan in Washington, D.C., 23 Republican senators, including the party's Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, wrote in a letter to the U.S. President Joe Biden that the administration's current plan requires the transfer of three U.S. Virginia-class submarines from existing U.S. submarine fleet without a clear plan for replacing these submarines. This plan, if implemented without change, would unacceptably weaken the U.S. fleet as China seeks to expand its military power and influence. Of course, this is in reference to the AUKUS deal. 
The Republican Senate has said that the U.S. requires 66 attack submarines, but the number of boats in its fleet is set to decline to 46 by 2030. While noting that AUKUS enjoyed a strong, in principle, bipartisan support, the senator said, under the current plan, the current AUKUS plan to transfer U.S. Virginia-class submarines to a partner nation before meeting the Navy's own requirements, the number of available nuclear submarines in the U.S. fleet would be lowered. This is a, re- a risk the U.S. cannot tolerate. Describing the congressional negotiations as colour and movement, Miles said, We're not worried about that. Some confident about the progress of Australia acquiring a nuclear-powered submarine capability. We are encouraged by the progress of legislation through the US Congress. US Ambassador to Australia Caroline Kennedy insisted that the submarine plan was, and I quote, not at risk at all. End quote. And dismissed suggestions negotiations had stalled. She told ABC News Radio that this was a hugely complex plan, part of our annual defense appropriation budget. And so there's a lot of issues that go into that. There is absolutely bipartisan support for AUKUS in the US and Australian alliance. Speaking mm. before a meeting with Foreign Minister Penny Wong on Friday, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, and I quote, we have no greater friend, no greater partner, no greater ally than Australia. And I don't think that alliance or partnership has ever been stronger, at least in my experience. End quote. Professor Anthony Albanese said he was very confident Australia would secure at least Virginia Virginia class submarines from the U.S. He said... I met with the Republican and Democrats in Lithuania just a couple of weeks ago, and what struck me was a unanimous support for AUKUS, the unanimous unanimous support for the relationship between the United States and Australia, he said. And so, in my experience, I've never had a politician lie to me about anything. <laughs> I mean, in summary, the AUKUS deal is getting tied up with politics as we expected it was yep. going to, you know, of course... A plan this big, this long, it's always going to happen. But our, uh, I think it's really important to highlight, and the reason that AUKUS is even mentioned in this news segment is because the AUKUS deal is probably more complex than people realise, and it does include things like air air bases being upgraded. It includes things like Australia manufacturing our own missiles. We have uh, missile capability and manufacturing uh, capacity so that we can manufacture missiles here potentially closer to the combat zone than what the US can. There's things like that. There's a lot more going on in the background than just we're yep. buying we're buying submarines. But that is the the glossy face of all of this, you know. Yep. Um, I know you're gonna have a lot to say about this, so. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Oh, I, I think it's wonderful. I just can't um, <laughs> tell you how. <laughs> Look, yeah, my view is this is just spreading the military-industrial complex to another vassal state of the US empire. Doesn't surprise me that's tied in with the submarine deal. Doesn't surprise me that it's being... Uh, Part of the efforts is being driven by the war in Ukraine. I am staunchly anti-war. 
in in terms of aggression, uh, in terms of self defence, um, oh, I've got no issues whatsoever with that. But as you were reading out some of the details of that, and I'm hearing the usual culprits of the you know, Lockheed Martin, I'm listening and um, and and Raytheon. Yeah, I'm hearing the one of the one of the tricks that they use in the the US for uh, getting ever increasing uh, budgets for the for the military industrial complex is they spread the love in inverted in commas amongst many of their their states. So what it means is as soon as you have uh, the the US Congress. Uh, saying, well, look, we want to cut back on such and such a program, then suddenly you find out that you've got you know, a, a manufacturer in Texas who's doing the, you know, make, making things up, a manufacturer in Texas doing the, the magnets. You've got someone in um, you know, New York State mining such and such a thing for it. You've got someone in California doing some electronics and you've got several other states and you've drawn them into this this web where by their representatives who get the money from the military to continue getting their their power vote against these bills because they've got some they're going to be um punished locally and i'm seeing this that model spreading to australia in in this instance i'm seeing australia just being treated as another another us state pawn that's how I feel about it in terms of the current system and taking a step back and looking at Australia as a nation state and what we might need to do to position ourselves. The idea of having a modern military technology capacity such as um, missiles, if we're going to be throwing our money at something. I can think of worse things to do with it. It's an area that is fundamentally changing. To my very lay person perception, military, uh, missile technology is something that is just fundamentally changing the, the face of modern warfare, particularly, um, particularly the, the hypersonic missiles, uh, what they can do with them, how they can target uh, Navy, um, and target uh, land targets. If Australia has to go down that route, I got to say that the missile thing seems to make some sense to me. So that's a slightly mixed message. I I loathe the the the, the politics and to what what seems to me to be uh, obvious manipulation of it. But geopolitically, I think there's worse things that Australia could be involved in. Yeah, look, this is definitely one of those. It can get a bit icky depending on which which way you want to look at it from. Um, I'm people have called me a, a war hawk in the past. Um, I don't think that's necessarily fair. I, I'm very. 
passionate about the defense of Australia and the continuation of uh, the rules-based world order that comes with, you know, uh, the the status quo of how things are. Now, of course, someone that's sitting in China uh, is going to completely disagree with that um, and probably call me an imperialist or, or, or a bunch of, of bunch of things like that. Um, I look at this and say... Australian manufacture having Australian manufacture high end technologies like this um, is definitely something we've done in the past. Not not specifically missiles, but we have had uh, the 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 means and ability and need to manufacture a lot of our own weapon systems in the past. Be it tanks and aircraft and small arms and things like that. We've always kind of had this distinctly Australian flair with it as well. Um, In fact, you mentioned uh, part of that last week with Lithgow Arms. Yes, yeah, with with the Lithgow Small Arms Factory, uh, which which did manufacture a number of small arms that were designed in Australia. Um, And so we're sort of this... I think we're one of these like medium power kind of nations. Yeah, we're definitely under the thumb of the US because that aligns with our ideology. And obviously, prior to that, it was it was the UK. Um, I don't necessarily see that completely as a negative thing. I do think if there's going to be a major like we're talking World War type situation again, uh, whether we want to side the the die has already been cast in my opinion um we are siding with the us and the uk on this the rest of the anglosphere and unless something changes really drastically in our political um with it with our politics i don't think that's going to change anytime soon so whether or not we manufacture missiles here if there is a major conflict we're going to get dragged into it what I do like about this is having some manufacturing capability here for these very important tools, uh, I think is going to be potentially sort of make and break for us if there is another major global conflict. We're already purchasing missile, like weapon, weapon systems, including missiles from the US today, right? So we may as well start manufacturing them here, spending their tax dollars here in Australia. Yes, these are American companies. Uh, Yes, they're the Australian subsidiary of those companies, but they are employing Australians on the ground. We'll be using Australian materials to manufacture these things. At the moment, right now, we're buying them from the US and that's just dead money, right? Um, It's going to support US manufacturing, US local manufacturing and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think from that point of view, it's, I don't want to say necessarily a positive, but it's definitely, it's definitely a, a, a pro to this. Um, the reality was in World War II, Australia, uh, very famously a very large island, uh, was cut off from the rest of the world, uh, by the Japanese. And of course that also meant we didn't have access to a lot of more advanced weapons of war like tanks like aircraft and things like that which meant we had to kind of make do with what we had and we started manufacturing uh 
we actually prior to World War II were manufacturing our own aircraft and things like that. But it sort of made the the it made us put us in a quite desperate situation. Uh, and very infamously, New Zealand was in the same, uh, and they probably built the most infamous tank ever, which they nicknamed the Bob Sample Tank. The Kiwis did. The Kiwis did, yeah. Uh, co- cobbled together basically a tractor with some armor on it uh, because oh. that's all they could do. They didn't. The, New Zealand doesn't have a big manufacturing base. They don't really manufacture very much at all. Um, it's more of an agricultural type economy. Uh, whereas Australia, we don't we don't suffer from that. So I feel like you know these are things we can do. These are things we should do. We also open up, and the reason the US is kind of pushing this for pushing us to do this is that you know they see us as a defense partner that's kind of a little bit lazy probably in their mind um a lot hmm. of europe manufactures their own weapon systems uh we don't <laughs> we just buy it from the u.s and what the Euro- war in ukraine is showing is that when there is a, a full-blown conflict like this and you're expending a lot of ammunition and you can't make it as quickly as you can shoot it. So we're going to need more manufacturing capacity for these things. And I think that's where Australia can kind of really supply itself and potentially supply the US or, and potentially don't, supply the rest, you know. Hey, don't you th- for I'm, – I'm, try, I'm trying to recall exactly what the figures are because this just – boggled me and you with your background might be able to to set me right on this but for an a, a military in which they spend something i think it's something like 800 billion dollars a year uh to have got into this conflict in ukraine and already be running out of ammunition just boggles me. I, I, I yeah. You know, I, I know. I, look, I know there's, there's, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a decent, uh, it's a decent conflict, but it's hardly, it's, it's hardly, um, you know, the most monumental thing that we've seen in the last seventy years. Certainly enough that I would expect that people of the caliber of, you know, a number of the U.S. generals. Would ex- would be able to say, listen, if we get into something like this, we're going to need X amount of uh, of missiles and ammunition in reserve to come out with this thing and say, well, we're running out of ammo. I thought, what the hell's going on here? It, a- am I missing something obvious? Uh, uh, no, you're not. I think it's the staggering amount of ammunition expenditure is really what it is. So. Uh, I've only got stats from last year. I don't have any modern stats currently, but Mm. I know uh, towards the end of last year, start of this year, Russia in Ukraine was firing approximately 20,000 artillery rounds per day. Um, I know Ukraine wasn't shooting nearly as many as them just because they simply just didn't have, if they had them, they would be firing them. Mm. Um, in the First World War, you know, we were seeing numbers like that. Uh, that that's why people have sort of drawn um, comparisons to the First World War in, in the amount of artillery rounds per day that we've been fired. Um, 
and out of interest, you can you can see uh, there's pictures from the First World War where there's literally like a mountain of spent artillery shells, like the brass casings, and it it literally looks like a mountain. It's absolutely huge, like hundreds of thousands of artillery mm. shells all piled up together, being sent back to the factory to reload them. Um, so the thing is, you're right. The US has a has a budget. I think last year was about. Eight hundred and seventy billion. It's almost nine hundred billion dollars, which is insane. Um, but the reality is, you can only store so much stuff before you know it just becomes obscene, and or you know these things do expire as well. So you you do have maintenance costs and and things like that, upkeep and blah blah blah. blah. Mm. Um, so having what's better is to have the manufacturing capacity so that if there is a war we can ramp up production sure. and basically produce enough and i think that's more where this this u.s led because i i'd imagine this probably was a suggestion from the u.s to australia like hey i know you want more. <laughs> you think so <laughs> hey mate i know you want more <laughs> missiles but uh have you ever thought of making your own you know um <laughs> how about we how about we help you out with that uh <laughs> because having that capability and that capacity, it's, it's all well and good if you're making the most advanced stuff, you know, during peacetime. But obviously during wartime, things become a bit more desperate. And and having that additional capacity, those production lines that are ready to go and that can just start manufacturing uh, when they're needed is way more important than having a huge stockpile of stuff. And actually, this is Very one of the downsides. Point. Good point. Yeah, and this is one of the things that Russia's kind of finding out. A lot of their all, a lot of their, uh, a lot of the, especially artillery and missiles that they're using in this war were manufactured back before the the fall of the Soviet Union, and of course, they don't have that manufacturing base anymore. So whilst they have huge stockpiles of stuff, they actually can't replace it very quickly. And so that's going, as we've seen, as this war's kind of dragged on for Russia, they've had to really slow down a lot because they literally cannot replace what they're shooting just because mm. they're not they're not as big as they used to be. You know, the, the USSR, in a way, was sort of a, a bit of an empire. Um, and without the resources and, and cap- capacity of that empire, you know, simply you just can't do it. So, um, you know, if we look to to the the American Empire, and uh, I know all of our American listeners just cringed at me saying that. Um, Australia is part of that, and uh, we're gonna have to start making our own stuff. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. <laughs> so, speaking of uh, war history, a little bit of war history, what um, what's happened this week in Australian history? Well, the history this week is covering July 27th to the 2nd of August. So, let's get stuck into it. Just looking at the, the clock. Uh, July 27th. 1953, actor and film director Yahoo Sirius is born in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Um, he sort of had a bit of a, well, I suppose he was a bit of a one-hit wonder, but I think a few people know about him. Um, 2005, after 10 years in power, Bob Carr resigns as Premier of New South Wales and is replaced by Morris Yemmer on 3rd of August. 
July 28, 1902, Indigenous Australian artist Albert Nematajira is born near Alice Springs. And in fact, we, as I said, we had our, our honeymoon um, up at uh, Yalara near, near Uluru. And look, I don't know if this was actually true, but there was, uh, there was an Aboriginal painting up there that we really liked and we just we just ummed and ahed and thought, oh, don't know. And we ended up not getting it. But uh, as, as it sort of happens between, between couples, you sort of start to create these little legends and it's become um, a thing for us to say, I think that was an Albert Nematajira painting that we passed up for an extremely low price so now we tend to use we, we tend to use nematajira as a descriptor of missed opportunities so whenever there's <laughs> something <laughs> whenever there's something that we think oh we should have done we said oh, i think that might have been a nematajira so yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting how it's tied up there um 1909, the last sighting of the steamer Waratah sailing from Australia disappeared off the coast of South Africa with 211 passengers and crew. And it was the most famous ship to go down until um, the Titanic three years later. I hadn't heard of the Waratah, but yeah. Yeah, I had, but it was more, I think, my nautical background sort of. Uh, of course. Maybe, but. but- you know, everyone's heard of the Titanic. Very famous. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we could send one of the new subs down to the Waratah. <laughs> <laughs> 1983, New South Wales Premier Neville Wren is exonerated by the Street Royal Commission over claims he attempted to influence the New South Wales Magistry. July 29th, 1960. Claude Charles Castleton was killed in the Battle of uh, Poziers and for his action in bringing back wounded men before and at the time of his death, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. Obviously, given the Battle of Poziers popping up, this must have been the the, uh, popping up with people getting Victoria Cross. Mm. Um, Yeah. Must have been that. Uh, must have been that time. Do you know how long? Question without notice. Do you know how long it lasted? The Battle of Poziers. Yeah. Uh, I think it went from, uh, like it's part of the Battle of the Somme. So it was like. Oh uh, right. Yeah. Gosh. July nineteen sixteen to like September October something like that. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. Like, literally hell on earth, you know. Yeah, just horrendous. Interestingly, there are pictures coming from Ukraine that look just like the Battle of Poziers. I don't think it's quite, uh, you know, I'm not trying to draw direct comparisons, but, you know, I I think Ukraine's a little bit more of a mobile war compared to that because that truly was, you know, absolute hell on earth. Horrendous. Yeah. Uh, 2001 on July 29th, swimmer Grant Hackett sets a world record in the 1,500-metre freestyles at Fukuoka in Japan. 2005, Lachlan Murdoch announces that he will be resigning from the executive roles with News Corp and moving with his family to Australia. Uh, July 30th in 1970, uh, sorry, 1997, 
Uh, there was the Threadbow incident, uh, the Threadbow landslide, uh, which occurred, killed 18 people, and um, a few days later, Stuart Diver, I think it was, was rescued from that. I think it was the only person that they got out. Yeah, I think we should clarify as well for our listeners that aren't super familiar because Threadbow is like a, a snowy area. Oh, it, it wasn't an avalanche from snow. It was like a like like the side of the cliff, sort mm. of like a rock slide, I guess. Yeah, like a landslide. Yeah. But when I think of Threadbow, I think of snow. So, yes, yeah. Look, yeah. Good clarification. Two thousand two on July thirtieth, the High Shop project of the University of Queensland. And this is the one that I had in my head when we're talking about this that potentially relates to the missiles. Uh, The High Shot Project of the University of Queensland produces the first successful flight of a scramjet engine. Um, And and my my claim to fame is I've seen seen it and I've touched it. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was privileged enough. To, to go there, yeah, I was, I was, it was a very, very hard run, I tell you. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, I knew you could run, but bloody hell. Uh, yeah, I, I just happened to be in the same room as it actually once. Uh, it was, it was at ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy, right. uh, and I leaned over the barrier and I touched it, ah. <laughs> and I got yelled at. Ah. Um, but no, yes, very cool. So you touched it. Exactly. I, I touched it. I've also touched a space shuttle and an SR-71. None of those things am I allowed to touch, but I touched them. So oh. <laughs> um, I'm that person at a museum when they say don't touch the thing, I'm going to touch it. Um, <laughs> just, just machinery. I don't care about paintings and sculptures and stuff, but machinery, I'll, I'll touch it. So. <laughs> oh, fair. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, July 31st, 1858, the first game of Aussie Rules football is played between Melbourne Grammar School and Scotch College. Uh, 1902, 96 men and boys were killed in a coal mine at uh, Mount Kembla in New South Wales. Was it 1902? Uh, 1956, yeah, yeah, oof. I look, I gotta say the idea of oh, going that way is it? No, it's not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's nightmare nope. fuel. That yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> not interested at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, nineteen fifty six actor Ernie Dingo is born in the Murchison region of WA. Not uh, Ernie Dingo. I haven't yeah. seen him. I haven't seen him around much lately. I can't can't no, say I watch it? a lot of a lot of free to air TV, but no. What's he going to be? 56, what's that? That's 44, 67. 67, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. okay. Uh, Into August, August 1st, 1791, the Third Fleet arrives at Port Jackson. Uh, 1902, the magazine New Idea is first published. Oh, wow. Might still be going. Yeah, 1902, that surprised me that it was that early. I thought it was going to be a 70s type of thing, 60s, yeah, 70s. Yeah, definitely. It, I yeah. think it is still going, yeah. Oh, I think so too, yeah. 1905, Floss Grieg, or Greg, G-R-E-I-G, becomes the first woman admitted to practice as a barrister in Australia. In 1984, Australian banks are deregulated 
foreign banks were invited to operate in Australia on 10th of September. And rat coming in the home straight, August 2nd, 1851, gold's first discovered in Ballarat, Victoria, leading to the Victorian gold rush. 1861, Edith Cowan was the first Australian woman elected as a representative in an Australian parliament, and she was born near Geraldton in WA, Western Australia. And finally, in 1989, the Australian cricket team, captained by Alan captained by Alan Border wins the Ashes in England for the first time since, and I know we've got the 4X uh, question coming up, but this is the last bit of the history. <laughs> 89 was when he won. It was the first time since. What year do you reckon? Oh, I don't do cricket. I oh, no, just... no, neither do I, which is why I thought it's just going to be a crapshoot. Uh, the first year since I'm trying to think when the Ashes first started because it's probably like really early in the Ashes. I'll say 1950. Not the worst guess, 1934. Oh wow, I, that's way older than I thought. Oh my goodness, yeah, way older than I, I thought too. But yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have guessed as early as as 50. But yeah, 30, 34. So it means what England had it for. What's that? That's uh, 55 years. That's pretty embarrassing, actually. 34 to 89. Yeah, 55 years. That's probably why the Ashes is such a big deal. That's pretty right. embarrassing. Yeah. There well, you go. Yeah. Like, like I said, I'm not, a, I'm not a cricket fan, but, you know, maybe if we win the Ashes a bit more, then I would be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I expect Alan Border uh, enjoyed a beer after that. I think he did. Okay. This, I got two, because one of these is really easy, and I think you'll get it. Uh, the second one, I'm not so sure. Name Australia's most populated state. Ooh. I'd have to, I'd have to go New South Wales. Yeah, it's New South Wales. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, good. It's New South Wales. Uh, now, what, the Great Barrier Reef, very famous. World-renowned Great Barrier Reef uh, is located in which sea? Remembering a sea can be also in an ocean. So the Pacific Ocean oh, is not the answer that you're looking oh, for. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not the Arafura Sea, is it? No. No. Damn I'll it. give you another, another guess. Oh, Coral Sea? Yeah, it's the Coral Sea. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, if you didn't get this right, you'd be a bit a bit uh, annoyed at yourself, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there you go. Oh, that's that was, yeah. Okay, so a sea can be within an ocean. Yeah, of course. Of course, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, well done. So thank oh, you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as it helps us out immensely. We've got to fight those algorithms and all that jazz. Otherwise, Join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Good night. See you, Nico. See ya. See ya.